Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sunday, 28th of November, first day of Advent, and our discussions, our thoughts, our reading of your word, all for the purpose of understanding better who you are, so that we know the mess that we're in and the salvation that is ours through Jesus. Lord, we ask you to bless your word that we may understand and obey it and for your glory and for your kingdom. We ask these things. Amen. I'm sure you may have heard that uh, time is considered to be relative and uh, there's a scientific explanation for that by very smart people that use mathematics with their science to describe how gravity can speed up or slow down time. But really, when we use that term, it functions more uh, in a way to describe how time either feels as though it slows down or feels as though it speeds up. And Christmas is probably one of the best examples that we can easily wrap our heads around as to the, the truth of all that. If you're a parent with young children, it's already begun. Uh, your schedules are filling up. There's probably a stack of cards that you're trying to assemble, complete with the pictures that you had to wrangle all your kids together with the right outfit, with the right lighting in order to portray the idea that you are as happy as that photo says that, that you are. Usually, I like the pictures right before and right after the, the good one. And then you've got a stack of mail stacking up, which corresponds to invitations, RSVPs. You need to be at this house at this date on this time and then this office or this venue or whatever else. And it looks as if December is going to be, again, that month out of the year that a good number of people that you love and care about are disappointed in you because you can't be two places at the same time. Now, your kids, on the other hand, have as much time on their hands as they'll usually get in a year. They're watching you run around while they sit and wait. And they can readily relate to uh, what C.S. Lewis described of Narnia in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he described it as always winter but never Christmas. And all you have to do is see December 1st on that calendar that you open the doors, it's got all the candy stuff behind it. It takes forever to get to the 25th as a little child, but it'll fly by and be gone, and all you'll have to remember it by are the credit card bills that come in January to recognize that it even happened. That's the way Christmas is, and it comes and goes. It warms our hearts. It's anchored in our tradition, but biblically speaking, it is everything. And if we were to try to answer the question, where did Christmas come from? If we're going to use this first week of Advent to trace it back as far as we can go in order to work our way toward the specifics of it that we've already sung about, uh, it'd probably be good in in a room this size, and especially if we're going to publish this for uh, public consumption, You're going to have to define what you mean by Christmas because it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. If we're talking about 
December 25th, Santa Claus, decorated trees, exchanging gifts, eggnog, fruitcake, nutcrackers, Russian nesting dolls, and on and on. That's one thing. And then part of that, but separate from it and not dependent on any of that, is the first coming of the second person of the Godhead who took on flesh, was named Jesus, came from Nazareth, came to take away the sins of the world, died on a cross, was raised, ascended into heaven, and we await his second coming. Now that would be described by a Latin word, adventus. We call it advent, and it has to do with Christ's coming. Now, there's a lot of ways in which those two things, what the world calls Christmas and we call Advent, overlap. And where if you wanted to trace back all those traditions, where did the tree come from? Who's St. Nicholas or Father Christmas or Santa Claus? Is it a pagan holiday? Where did we get fruitcake from? What's all this about nutcrackers or Russian nesting dolls? you would need a degree in world history just to get started to try to trace all those back to where those things began and for what purpose. But if you want to trace back Advent, you only need your Bibles. And you don't need a degree. You just need a working knowledge of the components of that narrative as we trace it along. So this morning, I think it would be worth our time, even though it might not feel as Christmassy as some Christmas messages, and we're working our way into that. You don't see all the decorations, but you heard the music. Next week, it'll look a lot different in here. To trace the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ back to what we'll call for this series, the dawn of redeeming grace, to take a line out of that silent night. What we'll need to do is start at the beginning, as close to the beginning as we're able to, because the truth is God's plan to save his people from their sins was actually arranged before the world began, before the world existed. We don't know when God decided to save us, but he knew that we would need to be saved. It only took place before our beginning, before time began, so we'll have to trace it back as far as our first glimpse of what has already become a reality by the time God speaks this world into existence. Now, we begin with Genesis 1-1. That is, when time began, when this earth began. And those first ten words, which are the price of admission, as far as a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, you have to believe the first ten words for the rest of the Bible to make sense. If you don't believe them, the rest of the Bible won't make sense, but you know them. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That presupposes quite a bit. First of all, that God was already there before the world began because he's the one that made it. And if you're going to make something, you have to be there before it does, right? Nothing can create itself because to create itself, it would have to be before it was. That's like showing up before you arrive. It's impossible. You can't get something out of nothing. And for this something that we're enjoying right now, something had to pre-exist it. With the power of being within itself in order to create from itself something apart from itself. You say, wow. And this is a Christmas message. 
Well, this is how this started. This sentence presupposes all these things. Created something from nothing, which sounds like a contradiction, but I like the way it was described when I read John Stott described as creating something from original nothing. That's where we began, with an original nothing. And then there was something. God started with the earth, which was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. He began to separate the, the, the land from the water and put it all into order. From chaos comes order. But we'll summarize. Over the first six days of creation, we've got chapter 1 of Genesis. Birds, fish, animals, plants, vegetables, all of that came to exist in the first six days. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 of Genesis covers the seventh day's rest, a greater detailed description of the man, the garden, the man's responsibility to care for the garden, and a description of one simple but singular prohibition. There's one tree you can't have. You can't eat of it. If you do, you'll die. The instructions were clear. Now, by the end of that chapter, it closes with God's creation of Eve and Adam's calling her his bone and flesh. By the time we arrive at chapter 3, which is what we'll read in just a moment, the creation is complete. Man and woman inhabit the garden made for them, and they have a clear understanding not only of their responsibilities, but their relationship to their Creator. Now, let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 3, and it'll take a moment or two, but let's read the whole thing. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, They heard a sound of the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's Word, and we are glad to have it. That stay in the garden was short, wasn't it? sooner than we're given a record of how marvelous it was. No sooner than we're given that there's only one rule in order to stay. The rule is broken and the garden is lost and it's guarded along with the tree of life with a flaming sword that says stay away, stay out. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 3 and we've read a lot We've got all the archetypal components of a great story, don't we? When I say archetypal, I mean overarching themes that make for bestsellers, blockbuster films, classic tales, themes so intriguing, so profound, because deep down we relate to every last one of those. We'll buy those books, we'll pay for those tickets, and we'll talk to our friends about how great they were. Because that's who we are, and that's how we were made. This is a grand story. It's all there. Creativity, beauty, relationship, responsibility, boundaries, freedom, choice, meaning, all of that's there. But perhaps if if you want to look at it in a more tangible, glaringly binary way, light versus darkness, good versus evil, right versus wrong, obedience versus disobedience, love versus hate, Truth versus a lie. All of that's wrapped up in just what we read. So let's look closely. I read over it quickly, but I read over the dawn of redeeming grace. But it's going to shine against the backdrop of a tragedy. What chapter 3 covers for us is sin's entrance into an otherwise perfectly good world created by God. It opens with a historical event that determines the destiny of mankind. I don't know if anyone ever looked at Genesis 3 as the one event in human history by which the rest of human history would be defined, but that's exactly what takes place. 
two people sin against God and the rest of the world pays for it. You say, that's not fair. It is fair, says the Lord. And you've got folks like, uh, I believe it was Calvin who described sin as what we do upon the first opportunity as human beings. I don't know that we would look at it like that. But we've got an entire Bible to show us how all this shakes out. Right now, we're just looking at this in conceptual format. Not a lot of details here. I'll come back to that in a moment. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 3 again, and up until then, everything had been described as good. That changes here. Sin enters the picture. And here's the three points that we'll discuss to organize our material. And then we'll go as we're dismissed. First of all, let's call this sin's context. If you're going to say that sin exists in this world, it needs a context. Where did it come from? Well, we're going to look at that. Second of all, sin's consequence. A lot changed regarding the world and access to God's presence. Banishment from the garden is a consequence for sin. And then number three, sin's cure. We see that here too. And how sin's going to be destroyed. So let's look at number one, sin's context. The details of where, when, or how sin originated are not given to us in the scriptures. Now, I know you probably are familiar with certain passages that have to do with Lucifer, this angel who, because of his pride, fell from heaven, seemingly taking a portion of the angels with him, now known as demons. These are passages of scripture that are hard to understand, and they are hints at what happened or how or where, but they give us no indication as to why. Theologically, we are confounded. It remains a mystery as to how there is a God who is completely and totally good without any sin or wrongdoing in his own self, but that somehow loose in his created world, there's this thing called sin that we have been infected with. How did that happen? Where did that come from? Because when we read the story, God's pre-existing. He creates the world out of nothing. Beautiful garden, puts a man and a woman in there, and the devil is already there. He's already pre-existing the world. So as to the origins of sin, the when, why, and how, we're not told. But we are told the when, the why, and the how sin came to this planet. We just read about that. A serpent came, lied to Eve, and she believed it. That's how sin entered this world. So we do know where, when, and how. Verse 1 of chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So what we need to identify as this serpent described here in Genesis 3, let's just say that he's real no doubt about that. But he's not ordinary. How many times have you talked to a snake? I talk to snakes all the time. Right before I take a hoe after them. But I've never had the snake talk back to me. I've never had a snake initiate a conversation. This was different. 
This is a personified being of sorts. We'll talk about this more in weeks to come, but it's important to understand that what appears here is in sketch format. I'd be careful to use the word sketchy because in North America we've got a casual uh, use for the word sketchy. It means a place you wouldn't want to go, a person that's dishonest or whatever, but sketchy is a sketch rendering of something which lacks detail. The first version of, say, your home plans are a sketch. Then you pay the big money for the detailed technical drawings, right? The detailed technical drawings of this are at the end in the New Testament. We're looking at the sketch now. So we've got a talking snake who represents what we'll call a maleficent personal intelligence. Say what? Maleficent. Some of you are thinking of a movie, right? Well, she was named that because she's the personification of evil. Malware, malnutrition, maladjusted. It means bent, warped, wrong. A maleficent, intelligent personality. This snake is talking personally with this woman, but in a devious type of a way. And he has intelligence. So this is a personification of something that's not of this world yet, but is surely in existence. By the end of the book, we'll describe him as the old serpent, the great dragon. No abstract principle whatsoever. But when we're told at the beginning of this world, this man and woman's innocence, sin is represented here crouching, as it were, in the form of a serpent. Eve responds, God said, if we eat, we will die. Serpent said, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. She took the fruit, ate it, gave it to her husband. He ate it. The eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. So the serpent starts with asking Eve a lie. We talked about this a couple Wednesdays ago. Most of the time you say, somebody told me a lie. Well, the devil asked a lie. There's a question mark at the end of that statement. Did, 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 did God really say that if you do this that you're going to die? That's the way you plant seeds of doubt, to mistrust their creator. That was the whole point. What he told them was actually a half-truth. Their eyes were opened, but they were not like God. They described themselves as naked, which meant more than they were not wearing clothes because they were not wearing clothes before that happened, but now they look at themselves and it's different than before. What had happened now was that they were ashamed because of their disobedience. When they heard the sound of God walking in the garden, they hid themselves. Isn't that what you did when you were little and you did something you weren't supposed to do? at least long enough to finish eating it. You get rid of all the crumbs, and then you act like it never happened, right? Shame is what makes us run. Now, remember, my dad used to talk about this. I heard it myself. When you run, it, what was, how did it go? It only hurts worse if you run. This will catch up to them says that God called to them. They answered. 
They said, we ran because we were afraid, because we were naked. Then God starts asking questions. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And then Adam starts shifting blame. Hey, I listened to Eve. Eve says, well, I listened to the serpent. The truth is nobody listened to God. And that is the context of sin. So let's look at sin's consequence. We now know its context, how sin entered this world. Well, let's look at what God says to these guilty parties. The Lord God said to the serpent, that's where he starts, cursed among all animals, so low you'll crawl on your belly in the dust. Of course, it means more than that, doesn't it? All that stuff that we talk about. And I know some people like to play with snakes. I don't like to play with snakes. But there's a reason why that type of an image is what accompanies most nightmares. When we make scary creatures to scare people in in movies, that's usually where we start. There's this fear that is struck and to even our, our psyche. And, and the, the psychiatrists are flabbergasted as to how this seems to be there before they learn about it. Um, it runs deeper, this curse, separation between people and this representation of a maleficent personal intelligence we know to be Satan himself. Then to the woman... Bringing children in this world will cause you excruciating pain. We know that there's more to it than that. Raising children is nothing as far as pain goes. That's way more painful to send them out, watch them make their own decisions, watch them turn out like mom and dad. What about this business of her, 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 her interest being contrary to her husband? Would you say that the average marriage is a walk in the park? Or or should we assign training the likes of boot camp for what awaits those who would think that they could live together for a long time, committed to one another, totally different from one another? And then to Adam... He's, it's kind of graphic here. Because of your disobedience, I will curse the ground. You sinned, the earth will pay for it. The natural order of the earth is bent and warped because of what you did. It was going to be easy. Now it's going to be hard. Your life will consist of hard work and suffering. You will sweat. Anything you have of any worth will cost you dearly. I'll curse the ground Of course, it means more than that. It means that this world that I made, the way I made it, is now forever broken until its restoration. The way I made it to work, it doesn't work. And I think all of us know that instinctively. God had given them life to bear his image, and now that they had sinned, he must take it back. It's the last part of Adam's sentence. You'll work that dust from which you came until you return. You will die. It's not the way I had intended. 
but because I made you to glorify me and reflect my image, but because you've marred that image with your sin, I can no longer give you the full life to bear that image. I'll have to take it back. Now, at this point, it looks as if it's all over. This wonderful story goes three chapters, the end. It was all wonderful, but it fell apart. That is, unless, of course, you paid attention to the 15th verse. And that's where we find sin's cure. And folks, it's about as sketchy as you can get. There's not much here. It's just a glimpse. We'll need the New Testament to flesh it out. Centuries, millennia, actually, before it all comes into focus. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you, that's the snake, and the woman. You won't get along. And between your offspring... Okay, so the snake will have offspring and her offspring. So at least we know, we've already been told that there's going to be pain in childbirth. Life will go on. Though the individuals will die physically, there's a perpetuation of these species. And then this business of he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right, who's, who is being spoken to here? The snake. Okay, who is the he? Shall bruise your head. Who's going to bruise the snake's head? And then secondly, and you, well, that's the snake, shall bruise his heel. Okay, that's got to be the same as the he. So who is the he? Who is this him? A descendant of this woman who will be locked in mortal combat with this snake. Because if, if you try to explain the difference between a bruising of one's head and a bruising of one's heel. All right, let's just uh, make this as clear as we possibly can. Someone has a hammer. Would you rather get hit with the hammer on your heel or on your head? I'll take the heel. I can do without that, but I'll need my head. A broken head means game over. That's what's going on here. This is the prediction, veiled and sketchy as it is. At some point in time, this snake who just infected the world with sin a world that now lives under a curse will suffer a mortal wound at the hand of one who only suffers a wound to the heel. So it may only be a sketch, but it'll come together. So let me give you at least a very brief Sneak peek, we won't cover all this through Christmas. We cover all this through each and every Sunday we spend together teaching and preaching God's Word, line upon line, precept upon precept. But this sketch is pointing to someone, somehow, who will provide hope in restoring what was lost in the garden. If you just 
say we'll, we'll keep tracking and then uh, not linearly but exponentially speed this train up toward the end of the book. In Exodus, actually later in Genesis, you've got this boy hiking up a mountain with his father. His name is Isaac. His father's Abraham. They're headed to make a sacrifice. Isaac says, Dad, we've got the wood. We've got the fire. Where's the animal? Abraham says, the Lord will provide. But Abraham knows more than Isaac does. Abraham knows that God has asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. The absurdity of such a thing, but he's in the way of obedience to carry this out. We know the story. Angel interrupts the last minute, sacrifice stalled, and over in a bush is a substitute. Someone else is going to take the punishment. Uh, Fast forward into Exodus. They've been brought out of Egypt. Almost, it looks hopeful, there's been 10 plagues. Pharaoh's about to tap out. The 10th plague is forecasted to be the most horrible of them all. The firstborn of every family is to die. Unless, of course, you've put away a lamb. Watch it for three days. Looking for a spot or blemish, it has to be perfect. At a specific time, you slay this lamb, reserve its meat to eat, but its blood to smear on the doorposts of your door so that when this angel of death comes over to take the firstborn's life, the blood is signal to this angel of death to pass over. In this way, the blood signifies a covering. You don't have to pay. Someone else will. Later still, through the voice of the prophets, speeding up but becoming more specific, There's this he who was pierced for our transgressions, a he that was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace placed on him, and with his stripes we'll be healed. Someone else is going to take the punishment to take us back to the garden. By the time you hit the Gospels, we're running fast now, John describes him as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The seed of the woman as a great shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Peter will say that he himself bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He would also say he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. The concept is taking on life and shape, that this penalty of death prescribed in Genesis could be lumped together, placed on one righteous soul. He dies, the rest go free. That's the way it seems. The author of Hebrews will tell us that by the grace of God, he will taste death for everyone, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Paul will tell us, that he has redeemed us from the curse, having become a curse for us, having given himself a ransom for us all, having given himself us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Just fast-forwarding through all these things that Paul had said in so many different places. Having been made sin 
who knew no sin, those who knew no righteousness could become righteous. And then probably the clearest of them all, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That would involve a bruised heel on a cross called Calvary. And at the words, it is finished, a death blow to the head of the snake. You say, that can't be true. It must be true. This is the Christmas story. Christmas story takes an Easter to resolve, but it begins all the way in the third chapter, 15th verse of the book of beginnings. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it is the very season of Christmas that makes me feel lonely for the garden like any of the rest. I don't know about that. I think it takes some age because Christmas is just all absolute wonder and festivity as a child. But the older you get, they just come so fast. And uh, like those goofy movies we watch about the guy who, whose Christmas can never live up to you know, the dreams that he had for it. You know? And the whole rat race of it all just absolutely laying waste to our energy even our excitement. And it almost just ever so slightly hints you weren't made for all this as good as this is. You were made for something else. You were designed to live in a garden in the presence of God. And until he takes you back, you'll never be complete. So what we learn today is that when sin came to the world, we were shoved away. The garden was guarded with a big flaming sword. The glimmer of hope is that there may be someone qualified to endure the flaming sword to take us back. This is what we call the first theme of Advent. This is hope. There is hope. All is not lost. It's only just beginning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these themes in Scripture, sketchy though they may be in the beginning, as we read through the story of humanity's failure and the righteousness of the Son of God who came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. This seemingly fantastic story that came to us preserved through history by men who saw it with their own eyes, heard it with their own ears, saw you dead but then alive. Lord, would you give us faith that rests in that hope And would you give us enough to share it with others? And Lord, would you be glorified to save some, to open their eyes and ears to the possibility of these things being absolute truth? 
And Lord, may it make a difference until we reunited with you in that garden made specifically for us. A garden on both ends and a desert in between. Lord, save us from our desert. And would you do that through the power of your word? We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the coming weeks. Lord, use us as you see fit. May we remember you. We ask this in your name. Amen.